take your copy of God's word this morning and open to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I think we all understand that every single human being has a certain perspective on life, a lens through which they see the world. We call it a worldview. We understand that once you understand the worldview a person has, you begin to see how they see the world and why they do the things they do and why they live the way that they live. We see it in our own political system. If you say you're a Republican, people understand from that there are certain ideals that you hold to. If you say you're a Democrat, people understand that you likely hold the opposite ideals. Uh, let me give you an illustration. Just, just think for a moment as I say each one of these individual words and notice how quickly a worldview comes to mind, a, a way of living and a way of thinking. What comes to mind, for example, when I say the word Muslim? How about feminist, how about creationist, or environmentalist, marine, civilian. You see, Im immediately with each of those words, there, a lifestyle comes to mind, a way of thinking, a belief system perhaps with some of those comes to mind. We see a worldview is attached to those different ways of living and thinking. But of all those examples, there really is one crucial category that we have to consider together this morning, and it is what comes to your mind when you hear the word Christian. What comes flooding into your mind when you hear that word, the way that a person should live, the way that a person should think? And can we say with confidence that the Bible really gives one perspective that every Christian is to have on life? The answer, of course, is a resounding yes. The, the Bible argues for one consistent perspective that is to be held by every Christian that truly is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. We began looking at this perspective last week, and so if you weren't with us, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message. This really is a two-part series, but we talked about the Great Commission in Matthew 28. The fact that every single Christian has been given a mandate by the Lord Jesus Christ as a growing disciple to be making disciples. We talked about the fact that that's more than just evangelism. It includes evangelism, of course, to share the gospel with the lost. But he goes on to say in that passage that we are to teach them to observe all things that he has commanded, which means ongoing discipleship through the local church. We are to share the gospel as people get saved, they come into the church, and they are then discipled into all that Christ commanded. This is the pattern, this is the calling, the mandate of every single Christian. No matter what other roles or responsibilities that we have in life, we are always to be growing disciples who are making disciples. Really, as we boil down the Christian life, that is at the very foundation. This simple mandate shapes our perspective of every circumstance in life. And the more we mature as disciples of Christ, the more the truth of God's word shapes and molds our perspective and our worldview so that we have the mind of Christ. We begin to see things through a truly Christian lens. The final result of that transformation can be clearly seen in the life of the Apostle Paul. In the Apostle Paul, we have a man whose total perspective has been radically and totally transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and so that he sees everything through that lens. And there's one particular scene in the life of the Apostle Paul that I want us to look at this morning that not only shows us his perspective personally, but it challenges us to have the same perspective ourselves. It shows us what is the unique, true Christian perspective that gives us a lens through which to view every single circumstance that God brings into our lives. Now, as I mentioned last week, I am fully aware that in the life of our church, we have people in every walk of life. We have people walking through circumstances right now that they would say are some of the best and happiest times of their lives, and we praise God for that. We have others who are walking through some of the darkest and most difficult trials they've ever experienced, and we pray for them and weep for them in that. And we have people across the spectrum between those two poles. And so my aim in these two weeks, last week and this week, is to give us all, to remind us of what is the Christian perspective. 
The Christian perspective that comes to every single circumstance from the highest mountain to the lowest valley in anywhere in between to help us understand what would God have me do? How would God have me think about the place he has me right now? That's essentially the question that we're looking to answer. To do that, we're going to look at this wonderful, challenging, convicting perspective through the lens of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, specifically in verses 21 to 24. Before I read that, however, let me just give you the the backdrop so we understand where we are dropping in here in Philippians chapter 1. You might recall that as Paul writes the book of Philippians, he's sitting in prison. In fact, he's waiting to find out the verdict on his case. He's either going to be released and be free, or he's going to be executed. Those are the two options that lay before him. It's one of the prison epistles, prison letters, along with Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. He writes to this church in Philippi, and we'll see that he gives instruction, but also throughout the letter he's saying thank you. It's a thank you letter for a financial gift that they've sent to him by a man named Epaphroditus. And he's sending Epaphroditus back to the church in Philippi, likely with this letter in hand, to say thank you and to to deliver back to them their beloved Epaphroditus. The theme of the letter as a whole is simply basic Christian living. How do we live as a Christian? How do we think as a Christian? That's why we find this perspective here in Philippians on basic Christian living. God has been faithful to use Paul's imprisonment for the furtherance of the gospel. He says that there are, there are many outside the walls of the prison who have been emboldened to share the gospel more fervently because of my imprisonment. And he admits that some are doing that with good motives, some are doing it with poor motives, but he's rejoicing that the gospel is going forth nonetheless. Now that brings us then to verse 18 of Philippians chapter 1. I want to start in verse 18 and read down through verse 20 to give us the immediate context. Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, I want to specifically to keep in mind verse 20, that final verse that I read, because the entirety of what we'll study this morning is Paul fleshing out, talking about what he's just said in verse 20. Notice there again in verse 20, at the end, he says that, that he has this earnest expectation that he will not be put to shame But instead, at the end, he says, but he'll be exalted, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Remember, Paul's in a prison cell. And so when he says whether by life or by death, he's thinking literally about his circumstance. It's either going to end in him continuing on in life or literally with his execution and death. And so what we get is a behind-the-scenes view of how Paul thinks about this very difficult situation. He's going to work this out for us, and in so doing, give us a perspective about our circumstance and how we can honor the Lord in the way we live and think through this. Now, it makes sense to us on the surface how Paul might be glorified, or, or God might be glorified through Paul in his life. It's a little more difficult for us to think, how is it that God would be glorified through his death? He's going to answer that question for us in verses 21 to 24. So let's read our actual text now, beginning in verse 21. Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. What we find in these wonderful, challenging, familiar verses is this one primary idea. Evaluate every circumstance through the lens of loving and serving Christ. Let me say that again. 
evaluate every circumstance through the lens of loving and serving Christ. Really, this breaks down into two major parts. We'll look at part one, which is in verse 21, the Christian perspective proclaimed. And, and this really is a, a statement. And then Paul's going to flesh out or explain that statement in the following verses. But let's look at the, the proclamation itself, the statement itself in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now that verse happens to be one of the most popular verses in the Bible. You perhaps have a t-shirt with that verse on it. I've known some Christians that have a tattoo with this verse emboldened on their shoulder or somewhere. Because it's a very popular verse. And it should be. This should be a verse that we put on t-shirts. It should be a verse that we have memorized, that we think on, and that we dwell on. But what's the danger any time a verse becomes really popular? What's the danger anytime we become overly familiar with anything in the scripture? We tend to, to miss the importance of that verse. I don't want us to do that this morning. I don't want you to hear that verse and say, oh yeah, I've got that. I've had that one since I was in junior high. Uh, we'll wait till next week for something hopefully to be helpful. No, this, this verse should transform us. It should reach down and grab a hold of us. And I promise you, I've been reminded this week as I've gone back through this verse again myself... We can't ever fully exhaust the scriptures, and we can't ever fully exhaust or live up to the standard that Paul is going to give us this morning. And so I hope that we will all come to it with fresh eyes, because this is a perspective that has to characterize us as believers. That's why he begins, for to me, to me. This is put in an emphatic position in this verse. He's emphasizing, this is, this is my personal perspective. This is how I think about life. And it's the reason that I can say that God's going to be glorified either in my release, in my life, or in my execution and in my death. For to me. And what he's going to do is give us two aspects of his perspective on life. He's going to tell us his perspective on life itself and his perspective on death. So let's look first of all at aspect number one, Paul's perspective on life. For to me, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. Now in the Greek text, there's actually no verb there. It just says to live Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fairly common way that authors will write in the Greek language. The, the verb is, is assumed. To live is Christ. This is so simple. I mean, what do we have? Four words. To live is Christ. And yet, these four words, when understood in context, should radically affect us. I want us to sit and meditate on these words together. Let's begin with the words to live. What does Paul mean when he says, for me to live? Well, it's actually very simple. It means exactly what you would think it means. It means literally to have physical life, to be a living, breathing uh, human being with a heartbeat that's functioning. This is a living person. And remember, in context, he's thinking for me to live, to be released, to have more life to live on this planet, to continue on in a real human life. Now, that's not terribly profound, but what is profound is what follows. To live is Christ. Is Christ. What does Paul mean by the fact that for him to be a living, breathing human being equals Christ? That's what we have to get our minds around. Understand that when Paul says, for me to live is Christ, what he's saying is that Jesus Christ is the grid. He was the lens for Paul. Paul saw everything in life through the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ. He evaluated every circumstance by connecting it directly to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For Paul, Christ was the goal of life. Christ was everything to him. In his estimation, Christ was so supreme as the Lord of his life that as long as his heart was beating and his lungs were breathing, his every waking moment revolved around loving and serving Christ in whatever circumstance he found himself in. It was that pervasive for Paul. The best and the worst circumstances that Paul faced in his life were all filtered through his love and service of the Lord Jesus Christ. For Paul, the prison cell was no different than the pulpit, 
Sickness, no different than health, and poverty, no different than wealth. All of them were simply the stage. They were the circumstances that God had laid in his life at that time to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul simply looked at his circumstance and immediately connected it to ministry. How can I glorify Christ in this moment? That's why he would write in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. For Paul, Jesus Christ really was the pearl of great price. He really was the treasure hidden in the field that Jesus talked about. He was everything. In having Christ, Paul literally saw himself as the most privileged. He, he had the most valuable thing that anyone could have in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why he will go on to say in this same book, in chapter 3, these words, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul had the unique experience and benefit of knowing what it is to actually suffer loss for the name of Jesus Christ. You know, in our, in our culture, at least now, uh, we really don't suffer loss of much for the name of Christ. Someone may get upset with you, they may not like you, but let's face it, no, no one's lost their house here in the U.S. No one's, uh, we don't have people being, being martyred on the streets for their faith. But here's Paul, and he's saying experientially, I literally, all the things that mattered to me before, I lost them all when I came to Christ. I lost my reputation. I lost a, a pattern that would have led to some measure of wealth and, and, and being well-known. I, I lost all of these things that mattered to me before and now that I look back on them, having lost them, I compare that to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know what my estimation is? Trash. It's a rubbish heap. In comparison to the supreme surpassing value of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the supreme love that Paul had for his Savior. That's why in every circumstance... And when I keep using the word every, I want you to understand that in the, in the fullest sense of the word. I mean every. I mean your circumstance. In every circumstance, Paul literally thought of it this way. How can I best love and serve Christ in this situation? I mean, that, that's, what, that's what it boiled down to. Right now, where God has me, how can I best serve Christ in this situation? Situation And his love and service of Christ was directly tied to the mission Christ had given him. Now understand, Paul was an apostle. Paul had a role in church history that none of us have as an apostle. I'm not claiming that we have that same mission. But at the same time, while he had a, a special office and a special role in the carrying out of the Great Commission... We all have the Great Commission as well in the sense that we're to be disciples making disciples. And we're to be equally as committed to the mission as Paul was committed to the mission. Therefore, the perspective that he has ought to be ours as well. But if we're honest, all too often there are, there are too many areas in our life in which this is just simply not true of us. Listen to what Gordon Fee says on this issue. He says, too often for us it is... For me to live as Christ plus work, leisure, accumulating wealth, relationships, etc. Both our progress and joy regarding the gospel are altogether contingent on whether or not Christ is our primary singular passion. Let me read that again, that last line. Listen to that. Both our progress and joy regarding the gospel 
are altogether contingent on whether or not Christ is our primary singular passion. Let that sink into you. Let let, let that get into your soul. We cannot share Paul's perspective on life if we do not also share his supreme love and value of the Lord Jesus Christ. The two come together. We can't take on this perspective unless we take on the same love and affection for Christ. He has to be truly supreme in your life or you will not see your circumstance in the way that God intends for you to see it. It will be very, very difficult for us to walk through the highest moments of life or the valleys saying, how can I use this to serve and love the Lord Jesus Christ if he is not supreme? I fear that often we break our lives into compartments, don't we? And as you look at your life, you may be able to identify certain compartments where Christ is very much at the center of that relationship or very much at the center of that activity that you do. But then there are other activities in which he's almost entirely not present. When I go to work, when I go to school, when I go to the grocery store, when I get my hair cut, when I have time to relax, that's me time. When I come to church, when I read my Bible, when I'm with Christian friends, that's God's time. That's not how Paul saw life. Let me also be careful to correct a a misconceived notion that some may have. When we read a verse like this, you may think, well, the only way that I can do this is if I quit everything else and become a missionary or become a full-time pastor, go into full-time vocational ministry. Otherwise, how in the world could I ever live this out? That's not at all what Paul is saying. He's not telling you to quit the things you're involved in. What he's saying is let this perspective radically change the way you think about all that you're involved in. Let Christ be the center of all of those things. Every role, every responsibility, every relationship has to come back to this. In this moment, how can I love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, as a believer, no longer are we defined by degrees or titles or positions, social status, All of those things are are subservient to the one overarching truth of our life. That is that we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul's not saying quit your job and become a missionary. He's saying glorify Christ, be on mission in everything that you do. Additionally, Paul's point is not that we can't enjoy the good temporal gifts that God's given us in this life. He's not saying it's wrong to love your spouse or to love your children. He's not saying it's wrong to enjoy hobbies or leisure or entertainment in the right proportion. Instead, even those temporal gifts are to be included in this umbrella of this overarching perspective. Even those things were to look at through the lens of how can I best love and serve Christ in this. Let me see if I can illustrate this for us in this way. My dad, like perhaps some of you, uh, was a veteran, is a veteran of the Vietnam War. Growing up, the war was not his favorite thing to talk about, but as a child, I would often ask questions and curiosity, and he would indulge me and tell me stories of his time there, appropriate stories for my young age. And you know, when we think about war, at least when I think about war, we think of a, a constant barrage of flying and passing bullets and exploding bombs and grenades. And certainly there is much of that that happens in every war. But what was news to me is that there's also long periods of regular mundane inactivity. In fact, a lot of people are based far away from the front lines, and so they play largely a support role and may may never or very infrequently encounter any live action. And so what that means is that soldiers in a war zone live in this very odd reality where There's this ebb and flow between truly life-threatening situations and very mundane activities. And it can change from one to the other just like that. In fact, Dad told me that frequently at night, he and the other soldiers would pass the time by playing cards. Hearts was apparently their favorite game. Not only that, but on a couple of occasions, Dad even had some time for R&R, vacation there in Vietnam. And on one occasion, he hired a local man with a boat to take him out, and he went snorkeling there in the beautiful waters surrounding Vietnam. But here's the point. No matter what he was doing while he was in Vietnam, from the most intense situation to the most mundane task, 
There was one overarching reality that defined every waking moment. He was at war. He was at war. You never forgot that. When you're brushing your teeth, you never forgot it. When you're playing cards, you never forgot it. When you're on the battlefield, you never forgot it because you were always in a war zone. Now, in the positive sense, I want to flip that around because that's exactly how we're to live the Christian life. In the Christian life, we have intense ministry moments where it's obvious this is a ministry moment. I need to be very engaged in this. And then we have very mundane things that we do. But we are always, always, always defined by the overarching reality that we are growing disciples, making disciples. All the time. And so... To be very clear, that means when you're faced with difficulties and trials, instead of seeing that as an obstacle in your way, seeing it as a divine opportunity to serve Christ. When that unexpected diagnosis rocks your world and throws you for a loop, it's remembering and being sobered by the reality that life is short and only what's done for Christ will last. Instead of seeing your job as a paycheck, it becomes a mission field. Instead of seeing that person sitting next to you on the airplane as just a stranger going from A to B, they become a witnessing opportunity, a person to show the love of Christ. When you watch TV with your family, it's it's no longer just a, a chance to veg out and turn off your mind, but it's to seize opportunities, to talk about the themes brought up in that film with your kids, to help them understand how the Bible would speak to this or to speak to that. Your marriage becomes a stage for the display of the gospel. Your singleness ceases to be only a temptation to tempt you towards discontentment, and instead you see it as a gift of God to use that time for the sake of Christ. Understand, whatever circumstance you are in, God has you there on purpose to be on mission for him until he takes you home. Use it. Don't waste it. Don't waste your tears, don't waste your pain, don't waste your joys and laughter. Use it all. Serve Christ, honor Christ, proclaim Christ, glorify Christ. That's why you're still alive. That's why you're here, Christian, to be a growing disciple, making disciples. The only way that we won't miss that is if we share the same supreme affection and love for Christ that Paul had. That's his view of life. That's what Paul means when he says, for me to live is Christ. But let's look now at aspect number two in Paul's perspective on death. How did his relationship with Christ affect his view of death? Look back at the text. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain. Now, if we're honest, this can take us off guard just a little bit. That makes sense, as difficult as it is to live out, that while we're living, we ought to be living our lives for Christ. It's another thing entirely to try to get our minds around, how can I bring glory to God through death? But Paul says here in his estimation, execution, rather than release from prison, would actually be gain. Think about that. To die, to be executed in my situation, Paul says, that would be gain. Now, I want to be really clear. Right from the beginning, Paul does not have some morbid death wish. Okay, He's not fantasizing about his death. He, 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 don't forget, he's, he's just literally working out his situation. He's, he's, this is what faces him, life or death. How do I think about both in a way that honors Christ? That's what he's doing here. And he's giving us this perspective. Simply put, Paul views death as gain in the sense that to die is to be physically with Christ. It's to be perfectly made righteous. It's to still be serving Christ only without the constant battle with sin. And so to die is to take possession of what he's been living for. To die is to experience full salvation, the culmination of all of his hopes and all that he's trusted in in the Lord Jesus Christ. William Hendrickson gives us a helpful comparison in his commentary. I'll put it on the screen here for you of of some of the things that are true of earthly life that will be different in eternity. Here, we have a a temporary residence. There, a permanent abode. Here, we have suffering mixed with joy. There, joy unmixed with suffering. Here, we have suffering for a little while. There, we have joy forever. Here, we're being absent from the Lord. There, being at home with the Lord. 
Here is the fight. There is the feast. Here is the realm of sin. There, the realm of complete deliverance from sin. You see, Paul had an accurate view of the value of Christ as well as an accurate view of his eternal life versus his temporary life. And so he looks at his situation and says, you know what? To die would actually be gain when properly understood. You know, when we struggle to see death and eternity as being better than life here on earth, it it means that one of two things has happened. One, we've either overvalued our earthly existence or the opposite, we've undervalued life in eternity. Perhaps both. We've overvalued our earthly existence or we've undervalued life in eternity. All of this goes back again to Paul's love and value of Christ. It highlights a a simple truth for us, and this is so important for us to get a hold of. We will never be able to genuinely say to die is gain if we cannot first genuinely say that to live is Christ. If our perspective of life is not saturated by love for the Lord Jesus Christ, we will never see death as gain. But when we come to the place that truly living is for the Lord Jesus Christ in every circumstance, at every moment of every day, then how could death not be gained? Because it means we gain the one we're living for now. And that's how we're able to adopt the same perspective that Paul has here in this text. If it's so good to love and serve the Lord Jesus here in this fallen temporal world, how much better will it be to be with him in eternity? In addition to that, this assertion that death is gain reveals something about Paul's confidence in Christ. For Paul to say so boldly that it's preferable to die rather than to live shows us that his his hope of eternity was sure. It was fixed. There was no wavering. There was no doubt. There was no wonder in Paul's mind, I think pretty much I'm going to go to be with Christ. No, it was, I'm going to be with Christ. He understood that that to to die is to immediately go into the real presence of Jesus Christ. This is what he would tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. That is, to be here, to be in this body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. What what Paul is saying here is that he has a confident hope, and every believer is to have a confident hope and rest assured that the very moment, the very second that we close our eyes in death, we will open them to see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be in his real, actual presence at the very moment that the Lord takes us from this earth. There's no delay There's no soul sleep. There's no purgatory. For the true Christian, there is a seamless, instantaneous transition from this physical life to that life there in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said that we're to view life as Christians, or to view death, rather, with an understanding that we are to grieve. It's okay to grieve. It's right to grieve for those who have passed, but never as without hope for those in the Lord, because we know they're actually experiencing that gain that Paul has talked about here. So just as a side note, let me say to those of you who have lost loved ones in Christ or who anticipate the possibility of losing loved ones in Christ, take courage in this great truth. For the believer, for the Christian, to die is gain because it means Christ. The physical presence of Christ if you've lost a loved one in Christ, understand that they, this is hard for us to get our minds around, but even if they had the choice to come back right now, they wouldn't do it because they've seen the face of the Lord. One second in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ is better than a thousand years here. Even as much as we love the people here that God brings into our lives, it cannot compare, not for a moment, to what it will be when we see his face. And that's what Paul means when he says, for to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. At this point, Paul goes on to explain even further what he means by this profound statement in verse 21. Verses 22 to 24 is kind of his exposition of verse 21. He's explaining it. 
to us. And we won't spend as much time on these verses as we have on verse 21, but I do want to go through his explanation. But I want you to understand that Paul is presenting this as a predicament. But it's not a predicament in his mind of being caught between a rock and a hard place. For Paul, it feels like a pillow in a soft place. I have two really good options here. I could live or I could die. And both are exceedingly good. Now, you may be wondering still, I'm still having trouble. How can he say that? How can he say that so confidently? Well, let's look at his explanation of that a little further. Part two, the Christian perspective explained, beginning in verse 22. He starts with the explanation of the phrase, to live is Christ. What did he mean when he said that? Well, look back at verse 22. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. If I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Paul looks at the possibility of his release, and it brings him great joy because his release in his mind equals further service of Christ and therefore further bearing of fruit for the name of Christ. He's not, he's not selfishly patting himself on the back as if he'll be able to produce the fruit. He's understanding that in the sovereignty of God, if God allows him to be released, it's for a purpose, for his kingdom, and therefore God will cause it to bear good fruit. So he looks at his life and says, if, if God lets me out, if I get out of this prison and I live on in the flesh, that's going to mean fruitful labor for me. And that's how we apply the phrase to live as Christ. If you're listening to me here this morning and you are a believer, then you are alive. You are living. And therefore, that means God has fruitful labor for you to carry out for his kingdom. That's how we adopt this perspective of Paul. God will in his grace cause your service of Christ to bear spiritual fruit according to his will in his time and in his proportion. But that is how we're to live life. As we said last week, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so this is the application for us. If you're a Christian and you are alive, start viewing every aspect of your life as a means of fruitful service to the Lord. How can I love and serve the Lord in this? Now, with that perspective, Paul lets us in on this internal struggle that he's having. Look at how he describes it in verse 22. And I don't know which to choose. I'm stuck between this pillow and a soft place, and I don't know which one to choose, he says. Now, that seems odd, right? How can he be, when you're thinking of life and death, why is this so hard, Right? I mean, I think we would all be having a struggle as well. Let's put ourselves in the prison, and we're thinking life or death. We'd be struggling, but we'd be struggling something like this. I would really like to live, right? I, I would like to be free. And, Lord, if it would please you, just please just go ahead and take me on out of this prison because I would really like to live. Our struggle would be between life and death. Paul's struggle is, is both are really good. How can we have that same perspective? Understand, again, Paul is not morbid. It's not that he looks forward to the process of death. It doesn't mean that we're to look forward to the process of death, okay? God has put within us the understanding that life is good. That's why we have the, the fight-or-flight reaction that our adrenaline pumps in when something happens that's scary. God's built that into us to protect our human life because we're made in the image of God. Human life is good. Paul understood that. So it's not that he had this morbid thought about the process of death, but rather the reward of it. What would happen on the other side of that? The takeaway for us then is to consider the fact that when we think about death, our desire to live longer lives often has more to do with earthly relationships and experiences than a desire to do more in the service of Christ. That's where we have to be careful. When we find ourselves in that conundrum of I'd rather live than die, how much of that is motivated by I'd rather live to serve Christ rather than I really I have this great retirement plan and I'd really like to see it to the end. Or, you know, there's this trip that I've wanted to take with my family. Or, I really want to see my kids do this thing. Or I really want to, what a, how much of it is that? Not that those are bad, inherently bad things in themselves. I'm not saying that. But how much of our desire to live longer lives is about that rather than God let me live that I might serve you to my very last breath. That's what motivated Paul. Paul wasn't thinking about any of those things. He was thinking about Christ. Again, 
I'm not saying it's wrong to love our families. You understand that. I am saying it's wrong to let anything take the place of the supreme affection that Christ is to have for us. This is the way that Jonathan Edwards put this kind of living in his own words in his 17th resolution. He said, Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. What he's saying is, when I get to the end and I'm on my deathbed, I don't want to say, if only. If only I had done this for Christ. Resolved to live today as I will wish I had lived when I come to die. That's what drove Paul as well. He goes on to describe it in this way. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. This is, a, this is a word that means hemmed in. It's the same word that's used of Jesus when crowds would get around him and press on every side. It's like it's, it's pushing on me. These two options of life and death are pushing on me from both sides. I'm, I'm hard-pressed. And that brings us then into his explanation of to die is gain. Verse 23, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Having the desire to depart. Depart, obviously, is a reference to his death, and be with Christ. Notice that is the main benefit of death in the view of Paul, to be with Christ. Paul wants to be with Christ in his actual physical presence. In life, he has served him. He's even had the opportunity to see the resurrected Christ on a couple of occasions, and that's only stoked the flame for Paul to want to be with him forever. Notice that Paul's first thought when he contemplated heaven was Christ. That's who Paul longed to be with above all others. For Paul's desire for heaven was not birthed out of dissatisfaction with his earthly circumstance. Understand that he didn't long for heaven simply because it would provide a way of escape from the trials of his life. He wasn't saying, man, it's gotten really bad here. I want to go to heaven. That's not what Paul was saying. Understand that in desiring heaven, Paul was not running from something, but to someone. It wasn't an escape. Life here for Paul was good, he said. I'm not trying to get away from it, but that would be better because Christ is there. You see the difference? I think sometimes we can confuse ourselves and think we have Paul's view of death because we so long to be there, but it's really driven by dissatisfaction with our circumstance more than it is a desire really to be with our Savior. Paul could have listed any of the other benefits of heaven. Benefits listed in Scripture. He could have talked about our inheritance. He could have talked about a crown. He could have talked about the removal of death, of sickness and disease. He could have talked about the removing of of suffering and sadness and sin. But what he said is, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ. I want to be with Jesus. That's what Paul longed for. And that's what we have to long for above all else. And the reason he had that longing is described for us in the next phrase. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. It's hard to, it's hard to put into English just how many superlatives are added to that phrase. It's very much better. He doesn't just say it's just eking over the edge of better. He's saying it is very much better. Better to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not even close. And yet he balances that. He balances that longing for heaven, that longing for Christ, with understanding that God may very well yet want to use him further here. Because he adds this, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. It's more necessary for your sake. Paul realizes that for him personally, death would certainly be very much better because he would be with Christ. But then where would that leave the churches that he was serving? And as he looked at this, honestly, it's, it is a, an, an exercise of selflessness for Paul to say, I feel that God's probably going to leave me here for your benefit, and that's great because to live is Christ. I'll serve him until he brings me home. It's more beneficial for their sake for him to stay because that means he's going to serve them. He's going to teach them. He's going to lead them. He's going to guide them in the truth of Scripture. Understand, Christian, I I hope like Paul that you long to be with Christ. 
But in the same measure, I hope that you equally long to maximize your temporal existence for the glory of Christ and the benefit of the church. That's what drove the Apostle Paul. Now, as we draw our time to a close, I want us to think on this passage from the lens of of personal application. And I want to call you to evaluate your perspective of life. Evaluate your perspective of life. Think through each of the areas of your life, the different relationships and responsibilities that define your life, and ask yourself, in each of those, can I say that my perspective is defined by the words, for to me, to live is Christ. For to me, to live is Christ. If you're in Christ this morning, the truth is, for all of us, no matter how long you've been in Christ, not one of us perfectly does this in every walk of life. Not one of us has this down in perfection. And so there will be room to apply it. And my my encouragement to you is to do that. Apply it. And here's a practical suggestion that might help. This is not, thus saith the Lord. This is, I think this would be a cool idea, okay? Create a a great commission plan for every area of your life. Create a great commission plan. So so think of it this way. If you're married, what's your great commission plan for your marriage? In what way are you a growing disciple making disciples when it comes to your marriage? If you're single, make a great commission plan for maximizing your singleness. How are you using the gift of singleness to use that time to serve the Lord? If you are a parent or a grandparent, what's your great commission plan for those kids? How are you going to invest in them for the sake of Christ? If you're sick, how are you going to use your sickness? What's your great commission plan for that trial of sickness that God's brought into your life? If you're healthy, how are you going to use your vitality for the great commission? In your job, in your hobbies, in your neighborhood, in your church, the list goes on and on and on. What is your great commission plan for those different walks of life that God has given to you? How will you use it to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ? Understand, as a Christian, we are never simply a husband or a wife. We're never simply a parent. We're never simply a t-ball coach or a church member or a neighbor or a friend. We are a growing disciple who is committed to making disciples, and that hits all of those descriptions. Don't stop coaching your kid's t-ball team, but understand you're teaching them more than baseball, right? You're looking for opportunities to share the gospel with those other parents, with those other kids, teaching your, your kid how to honor Christ when he loses, when he wins. That's what you're there to do, more than how to hit a ball, how to catch a ball, how to throw a ball. Start to look at life through the lens of the Great Commission, and then we will begin to say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ. But perhaps as you think about the walks of life in your own case, you, you start to say, you know I can't really think of any area of my life that's defined by the words to live as Christ. When I look at who's on the throne of my life, honestly, it's, it's me. I do what I want to do, the way I want to do it, when I want to do it. Understand that that may very well be a blinking light for you this morning to help you understand that you truly don't belong to Christ. What you need to understand is the good news of the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ came preaching proclaiming and securing for his people. And that is that you are a sinner who has rebelled against a holy God and that you deserve the wrath of God for your sin. But God in his kindness sent his perfect son to live the perfect life that you could never live and to offer that perfect life as a sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins and to rise again from the grave on the third day if you would only repent of your sins turning to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith that he alone can save you, then you will be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. And until you come to to see and savor and love the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that Paul did, turning from his sins to follow after Christ, you will never be able to live out this perspective. But today, if you will bow your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, then you can begin to see the Savior for who he is. And immediately you will begin to notice this perspective taking root and taking hold. And it will grow and it will grow and it will grow until we see him face to face. That's the good news of the gospel. Finally, I would call us all to evaluate your perspective of death. Evaluate your perspective of death. When you think of death, do you think of Christ? Paul did. 
When you think of death, do you think of Christ? When you think of eternity, does it outweigh the temporary pleasures of this life? When you think of eternity, is it always, not yet, not yet. That would be great one day, but, but not yet. Or is it, Lord, if that would please you, that would be gain. Even now, even though it's earlier than I have in my plan, if that's what you have, it will be Christ and therefore it will be gain. Do you live in anticipation of Christ's return? When we think about end of life, end of our days, Christ coming or us going to him, it ought to cause anticipation in the heart of the believer. It's my hope that in thinking of these two messages together, the Great Commission, disciples who are growing, making disciples, to live as Christ, to die as gain, I hope that we can see the connection between those two. And I pray that whatever mountaintop or valley or in between the Lord has you, that you'll begin to use and see that situation through the lens of the Great Commission. Understand that God intends to use it for your spiritual good, for the glory of his name, and for the expansion of his kingdom. But we have to see it through this lens. I pray that God would equip you to do it. I pray he would equip me to do it, that we might all be faithful until he brings us to himself. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, that is our desire. It's a hard calling. It challenges us on so many levels to think of life the way that Paul describes in those verses. But God, we pray that we would adopt his view of life and his view of death. But most of all, help us to adopt his supreme love and value of Christ. Help us to see Jesus as the true treasure that he is. Help us to see him in comparison to even the best things in this life, the people and things we enjoy the most. Help us to see all of that rightly in comparison to the, the supreme one, the Lord Jesus Christ. May he be our greatest longing. May he have our greatest affections and cause that to birth within us this perspective on life that is built around growing in our discipleship and calling others to do the same. Use us as long as it would please you. And we say with Paul that on the day when we see you face to face, it will be gain. Come, Lord Jesus, come. But until that day, use us for your glory. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.